Today's reading is just three short words, and it's taken from Colossians 3.11. Christ is all. This is the word of the Lord. Sorry, we'll just get all set here. We, um, if you're visiting with us, we, this is week four in a five-week series of really around what we are calling, not what we are calling, what are called the five solas. Um, this is the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, which was this really important time in the church uh, where the church had really kind of lost its way concerning the gospel. And uh, the reformers, led by Martin Luther and many others that came after him, were really trying to recover a biblical faithfulness. And so we started in week one with sola scriptura, that is, it is God's word alone, scripture alone, um, by which we uh, have authority over all of what it means uh, to know the Lord. And so uh, it's not scripture and councils. It's not scripture and a pope or a priest or anything else. Uh, Our confessions, our creeds are useful and helpful in to the point where they summarize uh, what the scripture actually says, but where they depart from or add to, um, we reject those things. Um, We said that our salvation or how we are made right before God is by his grace alone, that there's nothing that we could do to earn our salvation. Um, The church was teaching that it was by grace along with grace. all kinds of other things that we uh, had to do to earn Christ's um, righteousness. It was grace, yes, but also our good works alongside of those things. And the reformers rightly rejected that. Last week we looked at this grace comes by faith alone. Um, that it is our faith and both the faith and the grace to believe in Christ is a gift that is given to us by God himself. And then today, uh, part four, is solus Christus, um, in Christ alone. And so we want to um, look at what do these things actually mean. Um, The reformers rightly um, rejected what the church was saying, Um, that salvation came, yes, through Christ, yes, it was through grace, but there was always an and with it. It's Christ and indulgences, Christ and penance, Christ and purgatory, Christ and prayers to the saints, Christ and Mary, Christ and, and all of these things were added to. And so they didn't reject that it, that it was by Christ. They just added to it. And the reformers um, rightly said, no, it is solus Christus, that our salvation is accomplished by the mediatorial work of the historical Christ alone. It is only by him. His sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification and reconciliation to the Father. Lots of big words in there. We'll explain those as we go. And it's denied that the gospel is preached if Christ's substitutionary work is not declared and faith in Christ and his work is not solicited. So that's a lot packed into that, and that's what we're going to look at today. And we started with our reading this morning, three words from Colossians 3.11, Christ is all. Christ is all. And these are three words, but they contain great things. And these are these sayings, right, that Paul, I don't know if Paul had any tattoos, but I'm guessing if he did, he would have these kind of things tattooed on him. Christ is all. To live is Christ. I live, yet it's not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. We're going to look at 
Um, we're going to reference many, many scriptures today. And just for the sake of time, I want you to know that w- what we are uh, teaching is from the Bible, Sola Scriptura. And so I've just put all these references on the screen. Feel free to jot them down. I will email you these slides if you want. You can snap pictures however you feel like you want to record them or don't. Just sit back and listen, um, however you kind of soak things in. But these three words, Christ is all, these are the the essence and the substance of our faith, of Christianity. If our hearts really go along, if we believe these three words, that Christ is all, then it is well with our souls. But if we're not sure, if we we believe half-heartedly, then we still have much to learn. And so my hope this morning is that we will see um, Christ Uh, in new ways, in full ways, that we see Christ as the mainspring, both of doctrinal and practical Christianity, that it's not just kind of doctrinal kind of stuff, the the technicalities of our faith, but that Christ is all is the practical outworking of our faith as well. And so a right knowledge of Christ is essential to a right knowledge of growing and maturing as a Christian, as well as our justification right, are being made right before God. And we'll use this word a lot. Uh, Elder described it well last week, right? Justification, being made just or being made right before God, just as if I had never sinned is the way God looks at us when we are justified. And so we will, this morning we'll look at how are we justified? How are we made right? How does God see us as just as if I had never sinned? And we'll see that that is through Christ alone. And so here's kind of the three points or the the main outline that we're going to go through today. We are going to see Christ is all in eternal history, that Christ is all in the scriptures, and that Christ is all in the work of salvation. Um, Those are the three points, and there's a few things underneath each of those that we're going to go through. So let's look at this first point. Christ is all in eternal history. And we're going to start with eternity past. There was a time when this earth had no form. There was a time when it had no being. Um, if you go, we were in the Alps this summer and to stand up on the, um, the Alps and see Mont Blanc and these massive mountains, these mountain ranges that just uh, went on as far as the eye could see with these glaciers on top, well, for, for now, <laughs> um, the glaciers that are there and that have been there for, for I don't know how long. And just going, this is so solid. This, this feels so permanent. And yet there was a time when they weren't. As vast and as boundless as the sea appears to us, as high as the stars are in heaven, as high as they look, they once didn't exist. And man, with all of our intellect, all of our high thoughts that we now have of ourselves, we too were a creature uh, that was unknown. And so then, in those times, where was Christ? Even when Christ was with God and was God in those moments, he was equal to God, John 1, Philippians 2. Even then, before the world had no form, he was the beloved son of the Father. He says to the Father, you loved me before the foundations of the world. I had glory with you before the world began. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, before ever the earth was. John 17, Proverbs 8. Even then, he was the Savior. If foreordained before the foundations of the world, 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 1. And he says that even then, the believers were chosen in him. Even before we existed, 
Jesus was the Savior for us. What about then in creation? There was a time when this earth was created in its its present order. Sun and moon and stars, sea, land, and all of its inhabitants were called into being. They were made out of chaos and confusion. And then even us, mankind, formed out of the dust of the ground. Where was Christ then? Well, hear what the scripture says. The scriptures say this, John 1, all things were made by him, and without him was nothing at all made. By him were all things created that are in heaven and in the earth, Colossians 1. And you, Lord, in the beginning have laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands, Hebrews 1. When he prepared the heavens, this is uh, foreshadowing of Jesus. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he sat out a compass upon the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the foundations of the deep, when he gave the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, and when he, appoint, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him. Think about all the times that Jesus in his preaching uses parables, right? All the time as he's walking, as he's going, as he commands us to do in Deuteronomy, just teaching along the way. Think of all the time that he speaks about the sheep, the fish, the ravens, the corn, the lilies, the fig tree, the vine. All of these things that he spoke of are things that he himself made. He was there in creation. There then came a day when sin entered the world. Our parents, Adam and Eve, um, break God's law. They eat this forbidden fruit and they fall into sin. And we, their offspring, fall with them with with a spiritual sinful DNA that we are born into. They lose this holy nature in which they were first formed. They forfeit their friendship and their favor with, with God. They become guilty, corrupt, helpless, and hopeless. They become sinners. Not a very popular word these days, is it? But this this idea that you and I are all born into sin, we are born sinners, every single person on the earth, really just means that we are born with a nature that is against God. God has commanded, he has given us our laws, the way that we are to live, a way that honors him, glorifies him, but also leads to our joy and flourishing. We reject that. We create idols or gods in our own eyes. We ourselves want to be God. This is the nature, the sinful nature. We are all born this way. And sin came as this barrier between themselves and their Father in heaven. He dealt with them according to their deeds, or had he dealt with them according to their deeds, there would have been nothing before them but death and everlasting ruin. We'll come back to this idea of sin and judgment later. But where was God then? Where was Christ then? In the fall, in that very day, in the very day that Adam and Eve fall, he's revealed to them as the only hope of salvation. The very day that they fall into sin, they were told that the seed of a woman would yet bruise the serpent's head, that a savior born of a woman would overcome evil and Satan forever and win for us, sinful man, an entrance into eternal life with God. Right there in the very day they fall, Genesis 3.15. Christ is held up as the true light of the world in the moment that they fall. And never has there been any name made known from that day forward which souls could be saved except the name of Jesus. By him and him alone, 
Solus Christus, of all those that have gone before us as Christians entered into heaven. And without him, none have escaped eternal separation from God. So he's there in revelation as we are revealed. God reveals who is our rescuer. There then comes a time that the world seems sunk and buried in an ignorance of God. He's revealed himself. He's revealed these promises. He's made covenants with his people. But after 4,000 years, the nations of the earth appear to have totally forgotten God, totally forgotten who's created them. You have Egyptian and Assyrian, Persian, Grecian, Roman empires, and they've done nothing but spread superstition and idolatry. The poets, the historians, the philosophers of the world had all proved that even with all of their intellectual powers, they had no right knowledge of God. And that man left to ourselves is utterly corrupt. 1 Corinthians 1 says, the world by wisdom knew not God. And so except for a few despised Jews in the corner of the earth, the whole world is dead in ignorance and sin. And what did Christ do then? What did Christ do then? He left the glory that he had from all of eternity with the Father before the foundations of the earth. And he came into the world to provide a salvation for us, to rescue us. He took our nature, humanity, and flesh and blood upon him and was born as a man. And as a man, he did the will of God perfectly, which you and I have failed at, that we have left undone. As a man, he suffers on the cross the wrath of God, which you and I ought to suffer, right? That's what we just sang. The wrath of God was satisfied. We'll come back to this idea of God's wrath and justice. He brings an everlasting righteousness to us. He redeems us from the curse of the broken law. He opens up a fountain to cleanse us from all sin and uncleanliness. He dies for our sins in our place. He rises for our justification, beating death and hell. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. And there he sits down, waiting until his enemies would be made his footstool. And there he sits now, offering to salvation all who will come to him, interceding for all who believe in him, and managing by God's appointment all the concerns for the salvation of souls. Christ is there in redemption. He's also there in restitution. There's a time coming when sin shall be cast out of this world. And those of us that know Christ long for that day, we groan with creation itself. Wickedness will not always go unpunished. Satan will not always reign. Creation will not always groan being burdened. There will be a time of restitution of all things. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And where will Christ be then? And what will he do? In that time, Christ himself shall be king. He shall return to this earth and make all things new. He will come from heaven with power and with great glory. And the kingdoms of the world shall become his, we're told in Scripture. We shall be given to him for his inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. To him, to Christ alone, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. 
and his dominion, his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away. And his kingdom will be one which will not be destroyed. He will be the king. He is there in restitution. But he's also there in the day when all of us shall be judged. Revelation 20 says, The sea will give up the dead who are in it, and death and hell shall deliver up the dead who are in them. And all who sleep in the grave shall awake and come forth, and all shall be judged according to their works. All of us will have to stand before Christ and give an account. And where will Christ be then? Christ himself in that moment will be the judge. The Father has given all judgment unto the Son, we're told. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a sheep shepherd divides the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25. In 2 Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that that he has done, whether it be good or bad. Do you see who this Christ is that we speak of? Why is it Christ alone? Because it is Christ alone who is preceding all of the history that you and I know. Before the foundations of the universe, Christ already was. It is Christ who brought us all into being. It is Christ who reveals. It is, it is God in flesh, Jesus, the revelation of God, the very imprint of the nature of God himself. It is he alone who has the ability to rescue us. It is he who reigns as king. It is he who acts as judge. And it will be he who outlasts the rest of everything else in eternity. He is the eternal one. And so it is Christ in all in eternal history. If we think little of Christ, which let's confess, there are times that we do. Is that not true? If we thought rightly of Jesus all the time, so we long for. But when we think little of Christ, we are so unlike God the Father. We often think it enough to give Christ a little bit of honor, a little bit of reverence, a little bit of respect. But in all the eternal counsels of God the Father, in creation, in redemption, in restitution, and in judgment, in all these things, Christ is all and in all. And we do well to consider these things. We do well to quiet our hearts and remember. It's not written in vain in John 5, 23. He who honors not the Son, Jesus, honors not the Father, which has sent him. Christ is all in eternal redemptive history. The second thing that we see then is that Christ is all in the scriptures. He's all in the scriptures. In every part of both testaments of the Bible, Christ is to be found. Sometimes dimly and indistinctly at the beginning. More clearly and plainly in the middle. And fully and completely at the end. But really and substantially Everywhere in the scriptures, Christ is all. Christ's sacrifice and death for sinners and Christ's kingdom and future glory are the light that we have to bear on the scripture wherever we're reading it. Christ's cross, 
Christ's crown. These are the clues that we must hold fast if we're to make our way through the difficult parts of Scripture. And let's be honest, there are difficult parts, are there not? Christ is the only key which will unlock a lot of the dark places of the, of the Word of God. Sometimes we complain that we don't understand the Bible, right? And some of that's because we read just little bits and pieces of it. Imagine just seeing, um, I'm trying to think of like a big saga. Um, I was going to go with Harry Potter, but I haven't seen it. Sorry. I know that. I know. Sorry. Um, I'll go with Star Wars instead. Is that all right? Of course it is. I'm up here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but imagine just seeing like, um, you know, like, 10 minutes from the Phantom Menace and 10 minutes from Return of the Jedi and 10 minutes, like you just had these little snippets, right? But you couldn't put the whole story together. You don't realize that this whole story is about like this guy, Luke Skywalker and you know, his battle and all. you wouldn't, you don't really know. You just get little bits and pieces here, um, but it wouldn't make much sense to you. Kind of like Harry Potter is to me because that's all I know. I'm like, yeah, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I'm like, I don't know, right? That's maybe the better analogy from my perspective, right? But those of you that are like Potter nerds are like, what? That's the best story ever. And you like lose your mind over it like my daughter. But this is the same way with the scriptures. It is Christ that is the key that unlocks all of these things. Some of the reasons we don't understand the Bible is we're using the wrong key. Jesus himself in Luke 24, um, as after his death and resurrection, he's resurrected in his resurrected body, and he's walking along with two disciples uh, um, along the road, and they're dejected, and he asks them why they're so dejected, and they're like, have you not been in Jerusalem? Do you not know what's happened this week? Jesus is dead. He's been buried, and they, they, they're heartbroken. And Jesus has masked himself somehow to them, so they don't know it's him. And it says in, in Luke 24 um, that Jesus, beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, and all of the prophets revealed how all of those things were about him. And their hearts are like burning. They're like, this is amazing. They're starting to understand the Old Testament. He's unlocked it for them in, in ways. And, and he's getting ready to go on. They're like, no, no, please come in and sit down and eat with us. We, we need to hear more. We need to know more. And he breaks bread. That's not incidental, by the way. In the moment that he breaks bread, he reveals who he is to them. We the same. We have the scriptures. And Christ reveals himself to us in them. It was Christ crucified who set forth the, the Old Testament, every single Old Testament sacrifice that we see. Every animal slain and altered on the offer is a practical confession that a Savior is needed who would die for sinners, a Savior who would take away man's sin by suffering as his substitute, as his sin bearer in his stead, 1 Peter 3. It's absurd to just suppose that some, un, some meaningless slaughter of animals, the slaughtering innocent animals without a distinct object in view could please an eternal God. That's just crazy. Like God's just some arbitrarily, yeah, just kill a bunch of animals for me. There's a reason all of these sacrifices pointed to the ultimate sacrifice that was needed. It was Christ to whom Abel looked when he offered a better sacrifice than Cain. He showed his knowledge of a vicarious sacrifice and his faith in an atonement. He offered the firstlings of his flock with the blood 
And in doing so, he declares his belief that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 11. It's Christ in whom Enoch prophesied in the days of extreme wickedness before the flood. Behold, he said, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all. It was Christ to whom Abraham looked when he dwelt in tents in the land of promise. He believed that in his seed, in one born of his family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And by faith he saw Christ's day and was glad, John 8. It was Christ of whom Jacob spoke to his sons. He marked out the tribe of which he would be born and foretold that the gathering together unto him, which is yet to be accomplished. And he says these words in Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, no lawgiver from between its feet until Shiloh come and until him shall the gathering of the people be. All these prophecies pointing toward Jesus. It was Christ who was the substance of ceremonial law. You're like, why did, they have, why did the Jews have all these ceremonial laws? that God give them by the hand of Moses. The morning and evening sacrifice, the continual shedding of blood, the altar, the mercy seat, the high priest, the Passover, the day of atonement, the scapegoat, all of these things are pictures and types and emblems of Christ and his work. God had compassion upon the weakness of his people. He taught them about Christ line by line before Christ ever came. Galatians 3 says that it was the law, the law that was given to Israel, it was a guardian to lead them unto Christ. So when we read the law, when we read the Old Testament, when we read all of these kind of things that just seem so foreign to us, a different time, a different culture, we read them and, and ask the question, where is Jesus in this text? You read a story like Joseph. And the parallels are incredible. Hated by his own family, rejected by his own family, thrown into a pit. A pit is the same kind of uh, language in the Hebrew of, of, of descending into hell. Thrown into pit, considered dead. Raises again, is seated to prominence, and through him being seated, his prime minister saves his people. That's not just a story about Joseph. It's Christ to whom God directs the attention of Israel by all the daily miracles that were done before their eyes in the wilderness, the pillar of fire and cloud which guided them, the manna from heaven that fed them every morning, the water from the rock that was struck. All of these are figures of Christ. Do you remember the occasion where there's these plague of fiery serpents that are sent upon them? And if you were bitten by these snakes, there was a bronze serpent that was lifted up on a pole. And if you looked to that serpent, the bronze serpent, you would be healed. You would be saved. It's an emblem of Christ. It was Christ to whom all the judges of the Old Testament were types of. Joshua and Gideon, Samson, all the rest of them. Of whom God raised up to deliver Israel from captivity. All of them emblems of Christ as weak and as unstable and as faulty as some of them were. They're all set as examples for a better judge that was coming. They're all meant to remind the tribes of Israel that a better, a higher deliverer was yet to come as promised. It was Christ of whom David was the king 
is a type of, anointed and chosen, when very few gave him any kind of honor at all, despised and rejected by Saul and all the tribes of Israel, persecuted and, and, and obligated to just flee for most of his life, a man of sorrows, read through the, the Psalms, and yet in the end a conqueror. And in all these things, David represents Christ. It's Christ to whom all the prophets of Isaiah, from Isaiah all the way to Malachi, speak of. They see through a glass darkly, we're told. Sometimes they dwell on his sufferings. Sometimes they dwell on the glory that would follow. They didn't always mark out the distinction between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Um, we're getting ready to go into the season of Advent. Advent just means arrival. Right? And when you read the prophets, sometimes they're, they're speaking about his first coming that we've already experienced, the incarnation, Christmas. Sometimes they speak of the second advent, the one that you and I are waiting for, his second return. And oftentimes they don't really distinguish. They speak of both at the same times, like two candles in a straight line, one between the other, seeing the light of both. They were sometimes moved by the Holy Spirit to write of the times of Christ crucified. Sometimes they write of his kingdom later on. But Jesus dying and reigning was the thought that you'll find uppermost on all of the prophets' minds. It is Christ, obviously, that the whole New Testament is full of. The Gospels are Christ living and speaking and moving among us. The Acts are Christ preached and published and proclaimed. The epistles are Christ written of, explained, and exalted. But all through them, from the first to the last, there is one name above every other, and that is the name of Christ. We read the message of the scripture. We need to frequently ask ourselves what the Bible is to us. What is the Bible to you? Is it just kind of thought for the day? Is it just kind of good advice? Is it a book that kind of makes us feel good about ourselves? Or is it a book in which you find Christ on every page? Is it a book that stirs your affections for Jesus? It's like studying the solar system and not studying the sun. <laughs> that would be crazy, isn't it? The sun is the center by which everything else revolves around. And if we don't see our Bible with Jesus at the center, Jesus at the center, the sun of our solar system, then it's no wonder we'll find our Bible a dull book. So Christ is all in the scriptures. And then lastly, our third point, Christ is all in salvation. He is all in the work of salvation. Now, I want to just stop for a second um, and explain what we mean when we say solus Christus, because um, I want to guard really against being misunderstood. Um, when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about one person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, right? And so we hold to the absolute necessity of the election of God the Father, it is God who elects, and it is the Spirit, God's Spirit, who sanctifies us. That is, who makes us more like Jesus in order to affect the salvation of all of us who have received Christ as Savior. 
And so these things work in perfect harmony and perfect unison. It's the action of three persons of the, twin, of the Trinity bringing all of us into the glorious light. And that all three cooperate to work a joint work in the deliverance of all of us. It is the full work of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Such is the Father, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father is merciful. The Son is merciful. The Holy Spirit is merciful. It's the three It's the Trinity that says at the very beginning, let us create man and woman in our image. That also says, let us redeem and save. And so when we get to heaven, we will ascribe all the glory of our salvation to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one God. But at the same time, um, I think the, the, the scripture clearly tells us that it is the mind of the Trinity that Christ should be prominently and distinctly exalted in the matter of salvation. Christ is set forth as the word through whom God's love to, the, to, to us is made known. It's Christ's incarnation and his atoning death on the cross that are the cornerstone for our salvation. It is Jesus that is the way, he is the door by which alone our approach to God is made. Jesus is the root into which all of us are grafted into. Jesus is the only meeting place between God and man, between heaven and earth, between the Trinity and us, the sinful children of Adam. And so it is Christ whom God the Father has sealed and appointed to convey life to a dying world. We see this in John 6. It is Christ to whom the Father has given a people to be brought to glory. It is Christ of whom the Spirit testifies and whom he leads a soul to pardon, to peace. Colossians 1, in short, tells us, it says it this way. It pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness of him should dwell. And so I want to say that by explanation. I want us to clearly understand that when we say Christ is all, we are not shutting out the work of the Father and of the Spirit. They are, they are three in one persons. So what do we mean by that? What do we mean um, by this? First of all, that Christ is a sinner's justification before God. If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Hebrews 10. We're going to spend a few, uh, just the, the last of our remaining time in, in, in uh, this section of, of Hebrews. Let me, I'm just going to read uh, verses 1 through 9 for this, for this section. This is Hebrews 10. Here, pages rustling. People actually have like paper Bibles. That's great. And the tapping of little screens and stuff. It's good. Hebrews 10. For since the law has, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Okay, do we understand that? God has given, uh, he gave his people, the people of Israel, his law. Um, but it was a shadow of the reality that was to come. It, the law could not make us perfect before God because we are not able to keep the law. And so these continual sacrifices had to be made, right? The shedding of blood to cover our sins, and then we would sin some more. The people would sin. And so they would have to offer sacrifices again. Constant offering of sacrifices for the sins that they would make. 
Because the law, the, um, these sacrifices that were continually offered couldn't make us perfect, those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased uh, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. So these sacrifices weren't sufficient enough to cleanse us of our sins. Our conscience was still burdened in such a way that we had to continually have blood shed for the remission of our sins. Verse three, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So this is a situation that we are in before Christ comes. We know that we're sinful. We know we've broken God's law. And so we, there's continual sacrifices being made. Continual reminders of our sinfulness needing to be forgiven of. Continual scapegoating that's taking place. Verse five. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. This is Jesus speaking uh, of, the, of the Father. But a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it, is, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offerings according to the law. So, God commands them by the law. They're obeying him in the sacrifices, but God takes no pleasure in them. They're not sufficient to accomplish. There's nothing about shedding blood of innocent animals that God takes any pleasure in. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He does away. Christ comes and does away with the first. All the sacrifices demanded by the law to cover our sin so that the second sacrifice can be established. And the second sacrifice is himself. Jesus stands as a priest, but he is also the sacrifice mediated by the priest. And this is a sacrifice once for all. This is a sacrifice that is sufficient in the eyes of God to cover all of our sin, past, present, and future. And so it is through Christ alone that we can have peace with the Holy God. It is by him alone that we can have admission into the presence of the Most High and stand there without fear. Before Christ, if you were to come into the Holy of Holies, if anybody had just walked into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, it was immediate death. They, they just couldn't be in the presence of a Holy God that way. Only one person, one day of the year, could enter into there, the high priest. And he went through this um, intense kind of purification process. They would tie a rope around his ankle just in case something went wrong, he didn't do it right, and he, and he died. They could just pull him out because they couldn't go in to, to recover the body. This is what it meant to go before God in his presence. Do you remember Moses? Moses can't even look upon the presence of God. He just gets to see the afterglow and he comes down and his face is radiant. So radiant, they're like, you gotta cover that stuff up. But now, because of Christ, because of a satisfactory sacrifice that has been given, we can come boldly before the throne. You and I have been adopted into the family of God because of Jesus. 
It is Christ alone that justifies us. His sacrifice is sufficient. What are you going to, what will we bring before God? Imagine, just like before, bringing bulls or rams or, or doves or whatever it was that they were sacrificing. What is it that we bring? What are the sacrifices that we try to do this? Because as we've said, it, it wasn't just the Catholic church 500 years ago that needed to be reformed. It is us now, Christians, especially Protestants, that need to be reformed because we do the same sort of things. I bring my false offerings before God thinking they are good enough. I've read my Bible today. I, you know I'm going to church. You know I put a tip in the offering. I'm not as bad as that other guy. All sacrifices that we bring, and none of them are sufficient. Which of these things will stand before the searching eye of God? Which of them will actually justify us before God? Which of us will carry us through the judgment of God? None of them. Just take one of the Ten Commandments. Just pick one. Just one. And we've broken it a million times. Oh, well, I haven't killed anyone. What does Jesus say? If you have anger in your heart towards someone, Well, I've never committed adultery, but Jesus raises the bar. It is the lust in your heart that has already made you an adulterer. It's not the physical act of killing. It's not the physical act of adultery. It is anger and violence and lust in our hearts that makes us sinners. You commit adultery because you're already an adulterer. You eventually kill someone because we are all murderers. It is only by God's grace that he has restrained these things from full-blown action. There is one verdict that we are all guilty, that we all deserve the wages of our sin. We have earned God's judgment. We come before God. We come pleading the name of Jesus, standing on no other ground, no other plea than this. From the scripture, Christ died for the ungodly, and my hope and trust is in him. Christ died for me, and I believe on him in his sufficient work. I come naked and exposed, and yet Christ covers me with his righteousness, the robe of our elder brother, enabling us to stand in the light of heaven. It is only by Jesus and his work that we are clean and justified before God. And I know that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? It's hard because none of us want to see ourselves that way. We want to see ourselves in the best light. And so we're given filters on our cameras to do so. And so remove yourself from the equation for a second. Not that you're the criminal, but that you're the victim. That you're the victim of someone else's crime. Or just turn on the news and watch atrocities just unfold. Ethnic people just being cleansed and being wiped out because of either their race or their belief. 
There's hardly any part of our globe that hasn't had some history of that. And we know that all too well here. And we want justice, right? We want God. This is what a lot of people have struggled with to believe in God. And maybe this is you this morning. I struggle to believe in God. If God's all powerful, why doesn't he do something about this? Why doesn't he wipe out cancer? Why doesn't he just wipe out war? Why doesn't he wipe out all the evil in the earth? And the answer is because it would require wiping you out. It would require wiping us all out because we don't see ourselves as guilty. We see that as guilty. We want God to deal with with what we think is evil and not with what he thinks is evil. But God is so holy that you and I all fall into the evil category apart from the cleansing work of Jesus. It is only through Christ that God saves us from his own wrath, from his own justice, that we want him to enact on the world. We want God to be just, just not with me. I want him to be just with everybody else. But God in his grace and his mercy is giving us time to respond and to be forgiven, to be justified before God. And that only comes through Christ. It's the only way. Jesus himself, everyone thinks, oh, that God in the Old Testament, bit of a killjoy. Jesus was great. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pretty exclusive claims. No one talked about sin, hell, death more than Jesus did. I don't understand why he gets off the hook so much. Why? Because it is the question that we all have to reconcile. Be reconciled today. That's the question for all of us. Is that a reality in your life? Has Jesus actually done that for you? Because the good news, this is why we call it the good news, is that you don't have to do anything, but just receive it. It's just a gift. Just say, yes, I accept that. I accept that what you've just said is true, that what Jesus said is true, that I am broken, that I am messed up, that I, that I, that I deserve the judgment of God because I do have evil in my own heart, and that has manifested itself in the way that I live. But I want all of that forgiven by God. And all you have to do is say yes. How good is that? Second. Oh, I jumped ahead. Can you go back on? Thanks. Second, um, Lee, at this point, then we're almost done. There's only one more after this. So Christ is all in our justification. Secondly, Christ is all, if you're a Christian, in our sanctification. In our sanctification. This just means this is what the Spirit does as he makes us more and more like Jesus. If we continue on in verse 10. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ is offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool at his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus doesn't just save us. 
He saves us and then cleanses us. He empowers us himself through his spirit, through the work and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus to actually live a life. Until then, our works are dead. We have no holiness at all. We must be joined to Christ. We must be uni- experience union with Christ to be made holy. Without him, separate from him, he himself in John 15, 5 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't grow in holiness except Christ abides in us. He is the root by which every believer has to draw our strength to go forward. The spirit is his gift to us. He purchased it for his people. And so how would we be made holy? How would we be made like Christ? Christ is the manna we eat daily like Israel in the wilderness. Christ is the rock from which we drink like the the children in the wilderness. To be holy, we must look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. As we behold him, we become like him. The true secret of coming up out of the wilderness is to come to lean on the beloved The true way to be strong is to realize your weakness and to feel that Christ is a fountain for every moment, every necessity that we have. We, like Paul, strive to say, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We look to Jesus and our affection for him grows. And as our affection for him grows, it has a power that our affections for lesser things shrink. It expels these from our life. And so we look to Christ. And we say, I can do all things through Christ because it is him who strengthens me. And then lastly, he is our comfort. Sorry, there is one more. He's our comfort. He's our comfort now. Verses 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and write them in their mind. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. I love this, right? The Holy Spirit, it bears witness to us. It comforts us. It reminds us of who we are. It reminds us that we have been rescued from many sorrows. A Christian still has them in this life, right? Just because we're Christians doesn't mean we don't have sorrows in life. We still have a body that is weak and it's frail. We have a heart that probably is even more sensitive now. We have trials and losses to bear. We have bereavements and deaths and disappointments and crosses. We have family that opposes us, persecutions to endure, and eventually a death to die. And who is sufficient for all of these things? Who is able to bear all of these things? Christ, because he bears them with us. There's consolation in Christ. He is a brother born for adversity. He is a friend that sticks closer to a brother. He alone can comfort his people. He can comfort us because he himself has been Touched with our infirmities. He suffered. He knows. He's a man of sorrows. He knows what an aching body is racked with pain. He knows what poverty and weariness are. He was weary and had nowhere to lay his head. He knows what family and kindness feels like. 
His own family didn't believe him. He had no honor in his own house. Jesus knows exactly how to comfort his afflicted people. He knows how to bind our wounds. He knows how to fill up the gaps in empty hearts, how to speak a word to us in a season of weariness. He knows how to draw near when we are faint and remind us, fear not, for I am your salvation. There's no sympathy like that than the sympathy of Christ. In all of our afflictions, in all of our pain, he is afflicted in his pain. He will not measure out one drop of sorrow too much for us. David once said, in the multitude of my thoughts within me, your comforts delight my soul. He says, if the Lord himself had not stood by me, the deep waters would have gone over my soul. I would have felt like I was drowning. And yet Christ is there and he comforts me because he knows what it is like. We are all disappointed in life. We will all be disappointed. Rich men are disappointed in their treasures. Intellectual men are disappointed by their books in the end. We're disappointed with our wives. Wives are disappointed by husbands. We're both disappointed with our children. Statesmen, when they're disappointed, when they finally get to a place of power and place, and they find out that all of that is more pain than pleasure. But no one's ever been disappointed in Christ. We've never been disappointed in Christ because he is always faithful. And then lastly, Christ is all in a Christian's hope in the future. Let's continue reading in 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, how do we enter the holy place? By Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened up through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true hearts and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What are you hoping in this morning? Christian and non-Christian alike, what are you hoping in this morning? All of our hopes apart from Christ in the end are just vain imaginations. They're not built on a solid foundation, no matter how sincere they are. That next job promotion, if I can finally get a spouse, if we could have children, if I could, whatever it is, none of those things are made to, made to bear the weight of all of our hopes because our hopes are our eternal hopes. That's how we were wired. It's how we were created. Only Christ can bear the weight of our hopes. And so a Christian has good hope when he looks forward. This is what the, the saints of old were, were commended for in Hebrews. Their faith looking forward to something they couldn't quite see yet. They knew it was there. They were promised it. And they believed. We now get to see much more clearly. And so we look forward. We see light in the distance. That's the light of Christ. 
It's Christ who is coming again. It is Christ who is coming without sin. It is Christ who is coming with all his people. It is Christ who is coming to wipe away every tear. It is Christ who is coming to raise those from the dead. It is Christ coming to gather together his family that we may be with him forever. And so why do we patiently hope with confidence? Because we look for the coming king. He knows the time is short. We expect his return. He is our treasure. It is in him whom we hope, and a hope will not fail if it is in Christ. This world is not our home. It is but a hotel. It is but an inn. And so we know that he who will come, Christ, will come soon. He will not tarry, that he is coming, and that that is enough. It is our blessed hope, as Titus 2 says. Now is school time, but eventually the eternal holiday comes. Now the tossing on the waves on the sea, but eventually a quiet harbor comes. Now the scattering, but then the gathering. Now is a time for sowing, then will be the harvest. Now is a season of working, then we will be given our wages. Now is a cross, and then is a crown. I hope this morning, um, wherever we've come in, that we've been able to see Christ new again. There before the foundations of the world, there is our king ruling and reigning, gathering the people unto himself. In this time in the middle, being patient and waiting, calling us to respond to Christ and Christ alone. That we would place our hope in him, that we would find our comfort in him, that we would find our growth and maturity and sanctification in him. That we would be sure that we can stand just before God because of him. It is in Christ and Christ alone. Psalm 62.5, my soul awaits upon God. My expectation is from him. In all true saving faith, Christ is all in justification, is all in our sanctification, is all in our comfort, he's all in our hope, he's all in the scriptures, he's all in eternal history. Christ is all and is in all. He is preeminent, he is supreme. He's worthy of our worship. May we be recommitted to that this morning. May we commit to that for the first time this morning. We'd love to talk to you if that's where you're at this morning, um, finding Christ and his comfort for the very first time. One of the ways that Christ comforts us, one of the ways that Christ meets us in real personal and physical and tangible ways is through bread and wine. One of the ways that Christ meets us is through these sacraments that we administer. His body broken for us, right? When you come for bread, this is what we say, this is Christ's body broken for you, his blood shed for you. Because it is Christ in all and through all. When we baptize in a few weeks, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we say, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. It is the newness of life that we find in Christ. And so Christ meets us at the table. He meets us in baptism. He meets us in our worship and in our midst. And so let's worship together as we come to the table. As we meet Christ once again in bread and in wine.
If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to the table. If you don't know Jesus yet, we would ask you to refrain from the bread and the wine. This is what he has given to us as his people. Receive Jesus this morning as the eternal bread, um, as the eternal thing that will give thirst to your soul. Let's pray.